Good morning, it's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Reunion. And this morning, we're kicking off a new series called Gospel and Race. And look, we're living through America's third great racial reckoning. We're all aware of the racial disparities, racial biases, and racial tensions that have been boiling over in our country. Anti-Asian hate crimes have increased 339% this past year. If you follow the recent mayor race in Boston, they often refer to the stat from a study in 2015 where White households have a median wealth of $247,000, while non-immigrant Blacks had a median wealth of $8. So for every one Black household earning more than $75,000 in the metro region, there are about 21 white households. And so by virtually every measure, there's an enormous economic gap between Black and white households in the Boston area. In 2019, Boston ranked as the 19th most segregated city in the United States. And these statistics are just a small reason why Boston has a reputation as being one of the most racist cities in America. The question most of us face is, well, how do we fix that? And that's a big question that we're trying to unpack, unpack in this series. Because believe it or not, the good news of Jesus has a lot to offer us as we stare down this huge issue. Rapper and author Tripoli, he says it this way, justice and unity is popular right now. We shouldn't be excited about it because it's trendy. We should care about it because God does. God's been excited about it. And so we want to invite you for the next three weeks as we explore why God cares so much about this. Maybe you know that racial justice and racial reconciliation are important. We haven't been able to articulate how the gospel explicitly deals with some of these topics. Maybe you haven't heard or understood the experiences of people of color. Maybe you've never been challenged to consider what it's like to walk in their shoes. And so we're really excited. We have guest speakers from the Boston area lined up for the next three weeks because we feel that it's important for our majority white community to hear the experiences and perspectives of people of color. Right? We cannot work towards racial justice and racial reconciliation without mutual understanding. And so we have Rashad Clemens from Reality Church Boston sharing with us next week. You'll better hear from him live in our Reunion Metro, uh, sorry, excuse me, Reunion North location. Uh, he'll be bringing along some artists from his church and leading worship with Bailey. So you don't want to miss that. And again, Reunion North, not Reunion Metro. Uh, Jeanette Yep from Grace Chapel will be sharing with us on February 20th. Lastly, on February 27th, Pierce Van Dunk from Antioch Church in Waltham will be closing out our series. And while we're excited about the series and the guest speakers that we have lined up, we also acknowledge that from my understanding, this is the first time Reunion has done a series on race in our 15 years of existence. And if we're being honest, it's a startling fact because racism has been alive and well this whole time. Or we think of Boston as this progressive city and look down at other cities in the South and the Midwest, but Boston has some really difficult history with racism. Particularly in the 1970s and 1980s, the city was the center of some of the country's nastiest battles over the desegregation of schools and public housing. Southie or South Boston was ground zero for anti-busing rage. Hundreds of white demonstrators in all white South Boston, including parents and children, pelted a caravan of 20 school buses with rocks and spit that was coming from nearly all black Roxbury. Right. Boston also participated in formalized color-coded maps that were developed by the federal government to inform banks of where to invest in an area. 
the maps were color-coded based on how many Black families were in the neighborhood. And so private mortgage lenders refused to finance homes in red and yellow areas. This is called redlining. So redlining not only excluded people from owning homes, but confined them to areas of poverty and minimal investment. But this isn't just a Boston issue. This is a church issue too. Jamar Tisby's book, Color of Compromise, he says this, Throughout the course of U.S. history, when Christians had the opportunity to decisively oppose the racism in their midst, all too often they chose silence. They chose passivity. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. You see, statements like Tisby should give us pause, especially as we reflect on our life as a church community. Because the truth is, if we look at the 15-year history of who we have been as a church, we've often chosen this sort of passivity and inaction. By not talking more about racism and by not dealing with it more explicitly and more forcefully, we have allowed injustices in our community to continue. If we're being honest, I know, right, for, for most of our community, I believe when we hear the stats and see the news, we feel bad, right? We think to ourselves, how awful I'm glad I know that I'm not a racist like that. And so we move on. But in reality, we, and especially white people, cannot separate ourselves from the problem of racism, even if we are well-intentioned. Even if you consciously reject racism, the biases and behaviors we have regularly, con- we have regularly contribute to racial inequity in ways that you may not be aware of or intend. How we see and respond to situations is shaped by unconscious personal biases and stereotypes. We all have them. And these can come out in casual interactions and conversations that can make people of color feel disrespected or devalued. You know, I was hired by Reunion in 2017, and I was the first full-time pastor who was a person of color. But this was also the first majority white culture that I have been a part of. I grew up in an immigrant Chinese church in Chinatown here in Boston. My other church experiences in Austin and LA were at predominantly Asian American churches. So coming into this context was an adjustment for me. I've often felt conflicted in my dual culture environment, right? On the one hand, I grew up as an Asian American, but now my local church is a majority white culture church. And so, you see, Asian Americans were taught to strive for academic success and professional stability as a means of honoring the sacrifices of our immigrant parents or immigrant grandparents. We've been taught not to question authority, not to rock the boat, and to listen and not speak when the presence of an elder or superior. But these values are often different from what's valued at the, at the professional spheres of white America. There you should be critical of authority and rules. You do speak up in meetings and offer your thoughts unprompted, and you put yourself out there in front to be seen. And so I find myself often feeling conflicted and uncomfortable, not just because I don't look like the majority of the community I'm called to lead, but because I grew up in an American culture that told me I didn't belong. I don't know how many times growing up I've been asked where I was from. I'm from Boston. I was born and raised in Boston. No, but where are you really from? And conversations like that indicate and communicate to me that I don't belong here. Right? Even though my parents were even born in America, 
I just look different with my black hair and Asian face. When I was a kid, people would make fun of my eyes all the time or my last name. In high school, I got cut from my freshman basketball team because of racism. Only white kids made the team. I've been asked to be a part of a board of a church denomination here in New England just for tokenism. And I've experienced some painful moments of racism in my life, but they really don't compare to what my immigrant grandparents went through. My grandparents immigrated to America in the 1940s after the Chinese Exclusion Act ended. But the ramifications of that act reinforced racism and prejudices in this country. Right, My grandparents were prevented from working in most vocations, and so they turned to laundry because it was not a desired vocation by white people. They opened a laundry business in Harvard Square, but they were forced to sleep in their laundry mat because nobody would rent to them because of racial discrimination. And I share parts of my story to show how implicit and explicit biases and stereotypes are real. But I'm not here to point the finger. Because I've experienced racism, I can identify it. And I know the sin of racism is in my heart as well. I've harbored biases that are unfair to other ethnic and cultural people groups. I perpetuated racism both intentionally and unintentionally. But these biases weren't just formed out of nowhere. It was shaped by these dualistic cultures I grew up in. Right? Chinese immigrants, we've been so focused on the American dream and just surviving. And so the best path to survive was to fit in and assimilate to the majority white culture. So we were taught to not bring attention to ourselves and by just keeping our heads down and working hard. However, for us to fit in, we bought into the notion of racial hierarchies and we became silent. Unfortunately, we often fail to realize that the rights and opportunities were not only made possible by the Black community, but also at their expense. Recently, there's been a lot of Asian American hate crimes. After one of the major events, a person of color from Reunion emailed me to communicate support and solidarity. And after that, reading, reading that email, I was both hopeful and discouraged. I was hopeful because there was someone at Reunion who really cared and was walking in solidarity with me. At the same time, I was discouraged because I realized how I didn't do that for other people of color in our community. I've been complicit in my silence and I failed to walk in solidarity with others. And all of us have to wrestle with that simple truth as we kick off this series. Racism is not those people's problem. It's our problem, yours and mine. Unfortunately, it's where we often get stuck. There's so much defensiveness on racial matters that we shut down or we're thinking about another friend or family member who really needs to hear this series. And much of these issues are rooted in our pride. Pride confuses our identity with God's and make us think our, ourselves as higher and greater than we really are. Longtime diversity trainer and author Robin D'Angelo says this in her book, White, Fr White Fragility. The mainstream definition of racism is when an individual consciously doesn't like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them. But who's going to own intentional meanness? And that definition is the root of virtually all white defensiveness. What she's saying here is that this, this bad acts by bad people definition of racism, there's no need to talk about racism or even race because in our pride, we don't believe we are bad people. Historian and author Ibram Kendi says this, 
Denial is the heartbeat of racism. Beating across ideologies, races, and nations, it is beating within us. So dealing with that sort of denial is not a new problem. And we find the same sort of thing happening in the Bible. There's a letter from Paul to his closest friend, Timothy, who was leading this church in Ephesus that was similar to Boston. It was a port city, right, with a lot of ethnicities. And it had a lot of history of racial disunity. And leaders in that church began to twist what it meant to follow Jesus for power and control. So Paul decides he needs to address these leaders in the church. And so he writes a letter. But before Paul even gets into the divisive issues, he he does something very surprising. He begins to share his story. In a direct contrast to the proud and arrogant leaders waging war in the church in Ephesus, Paul recounts how undeserving he is and exposes the very worst parts of himself to everyone. So we pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. This is Paul again writing, says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So if you are familiar with Paul's history, he oversaw the persecution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, martyr, and then he devoted his entire life, or not entire until he was converted, but his life to arresting and imprisoning and killing Christians everywhere he could. Paul was very specific about his day and his, his past and his story. He didn't suppress it and look away. He, in fact, he brought attention to it. So humility is knowing the reality of who we are and where we came from. In our pride, we would rather look the other way and think of ourselves better or higher than we actually are. Before we, but before we can even take a step into what it looks like for us to be a reconciled community, we must recognize that we've contributed to racism. Without that recognition and entering into the space with humility, we can never be a part of a reconciled gospel community that we strive to become. Latasha Morrison, the creator and author of Be the Bridge, she says this, Without knowing our history, it can be difficult to know what needs repairing and what needs reconciling. Paul continues on and communicates his first trustworthy statement, right? And uses this phrase five times in his letters, and they all have an element where he writes, here is a trustworthy saying. And so in every instance where he uses this phrase, Paul speaks to the most essential elements of the Christian life. It's kind of like when someone you know, writes you an email and puts something in bold, right? And, or or document and you put something in bold, right? Or big letters, right? In verse 15, Paul, this is what Paul says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so Paul is basically like, if you don't remember anything else in this letter, remember this, this is like bold letters, all caps. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, I'm the worst. And he uses the use of this term worst in Greek is protos. It literally means first, meaning Paul is saying, I hold the top spot in the sinner category. I am the number one sinner. I am the worst. 
And you notice that Paul isn't even talking in the past tense. He's talking in the present tense. See, Paul sees himself as a sinner, but he also sees himself as saved and moving towards wholeness. And this, this is what it means to walk with Jesus. When you walk with Jesus, it becomes far easier to admit that we've messed up and that we will continue to mess up because we know someone who will take that messed upness and turn it into something beautiful. Jesus ensures that our failures are not the final word of who we are. And because we have that guarantee, we can find that f- the freedom to own all of ourselves, both the good and the bad. And so Paul, before Paul begins to call out the problematic and divisive behaviors within the church, he humbles himself. Right? But humility doesn't mean we should be silent, right? If you read the rest of 1 Timothy, Paul calls out and confronts the people who are corrupting the church. It's easy and convenient to diagnose racial injustice as unjust, unjust systems external to ourselves. It's much more painful to pinpoint it in one's own heart. But racism will never be rooted out and dealt with on a systematic level until it is first confessed and lamented on a personal level. It has to begin with me. The gospel dares to confront us with the reality that our hands are not clean. We are neither an innocent victim or a righteous bystander. And so we invite Jesus into the biases and prejudices of our lives. Paul continues after his confession. He goes on to say this, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, God had mercy on Paul so that people like you and me could see how patient Jesus was with the worst of sinners. See, the good news of the gospel is that although our hands are not clean, that doesn't mean it's all over for us. God's mercy can reach anyone. It's only in the gospel, only in Christianity, that you see there's good news for bad people, even the worst. It's only because Jesus became the worst that now we can become beautiful. Right? Paul understood this truth when he said this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, on the cross, God treated him, Jesus, as if he was sin. Right? He, he embodied sin. God made Jesus the worst person in the world and took all of the worst parts of us upon him. Jesus became the worst but he did so so that we could become beautiful. When we know that we're the worst, but Jesus made us beautiful, it's transformative. There's a story in scripture where Jesus meets a guy named Simon the Pharisee and a woman who's, who's a prostitute. And so they both end up meeting Jesus at the same time. And Simon just kind of goes, hey, Jesus, and comes down and sits and talks, talks with Jesus. And then there's this woman who's just weeping tears of joy and anointing his feet with tears and with perfume. You can imagine how awkward this scene is. And Simon is kind of taken aback and Jesus turns around and says, Simon, do you, do you want to know why she kisses me and you just shake my hand? Do you want to know why you want an intellectual conversation with me and she is throwing herself at my feet? Do you want to know why you're interested in me? 
and she absolutely loves me. And Jesus, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. See, the biggest repenter is always the greatest. Why? The biggest repenter experiences grace. The bigger you know your debt is, the greater you know the value of what God has done for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's totally upside down. If you want to be a reconciled community, we must begin with humility. Humility will lead to curiosity and listening. We have to keep listening, even when we want to scream, I'm not that way. That isn't my fault. We have to examine and own our stereotypes and prejudices. Every single one of us has them. It will be tough. We have to think about our past and how we grew up. We'll need to be, have honest conversations of how we were raised and the biases that have been formed. Right? It's not productive to deny how hard we all work for what we have, but it's not honest to deny that many of us afforded privileges based on who we are and what we look like. Author Daniel Hill in his book, Wide Awake, he says this, our old self has been profoundly shaped by race and we can't grow into the new and redeemed self without naming the presence of that sin, confessing the ways it has imp- impacted us and doing all we can to break free from its former power. We will have to choose courage over comfort. We'll have to feel our way through the shame and the sorrow. We'll have to listen We'll have to challenge our resistance and our defensiveness, right? History and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance, right? There can be no repentance without confession. There can be no confession without truth. That is Jamar Tisby again in The Color of Compromise, right? Our community groups just started a new season and all of our groups will be having this honest discussion about racial justice and reconciliation. If you aren't part of a group, I would want to invite you now to join one. This is a great time to take that next step. We believe that following Jesus is something that we can only do together, especially as we process and figure this faith thing out. Or you can go to our website, reunionboston.com, and check out our group page, or just email me, matt at reunionboston.com. And I encourage you to have these difficult conversations about race with others, but do so with humility. We'll be slower to grow angry, quicker to confess, and quicker to forgive. I also want to encourage you to just be present and commit to listen to our guest speakers as they take time and effort to share their story, stories with us. It's popular nowadays to highlight the problems of God's people when it comes to race. And indeed, if, you, if one is looking for fault, people can find it. No doubt God's people are a mess, but we are a beloved mess. And just this journey to become a reconciled community can be painful. But we have a God who is immensely patient with us. And even though we are the worst, God can make us beautiful. Let's pray together. Oh God, our hearts are broken. We confess that our hearts are tainted and with favoritism, biases, and prejudice. We're so steeped in these things. We often show partiality even without realizing it. Lord God, we, your church, lament our expectations, rationalizations, deflections, and self-justifications. We lament our callousness and our convenient blindness. We lament our complicity in a system that that advantages some and disadvantages others on the basis of the color of their skin. God, we we repent. 
We confess we've not loved you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. But in our awareness and out of deep and genuine concern for our brothers and sisters of color, we bring our failures and frustrations and fears to you. God, for you alone are our hope and salvation. Make us a church community where humility, repentance, forgiveness, racial reconciliation, and a commitment to justice for all are rooted within us. God, in Jesus' name, amen.